episode is supported by TeamDrive, the enterprise and personal file synchronization and sharing solution that is secure and protects your privacy. To learn more, visit teamdrive.com or if you are from US, visit syncion.com. S-Y-N-Q-I-O-N.com. You will get 15% discount on the first year subscription if you use coupon code GADA15, G-A-D-A-1-5. This episode is supported by Tutanota, the secure Gmail replacement. I use Tutanota because it respects my privacy and keeps my data secure. As Tutanota is ad-free, the team asked me to keep this ad short. So let's start with the real thing. To know more, visit tutanota.com. This is Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. Here's your host, Francesco Garaletta. Thanks for tuning in and uh, welcome to Data Science at Home podcast where we talk about technology, machine learning and algorithms. In uh, this episode, I'm uh, going to speak about weather forecast and uh, deep learning in uh, weather forecast. I know that uh, so far we have been reading and speaking about deep learning for uh, healthcare, for finance, uh, for social media. Very rarely, I must say, we have read about uh, or spoken about uh, uh, deep learning and artificial intelligence for uh, for something so specific as uh, weather or climate forecast. And why is that? Is well, usually because the domain knowledge that is required to understand these, uh, you know, climate simulations is extremely. Uh, complex, it's quite difficult, and also because it is very well known to researchers and scientists how challenging the task of uh, predicting the weather is. Common knowledge says uh, that climate predictions don't go farther than two or three days. After five days, definitely the prediction is going to be quite unreliable. And why is that is because indeed uh, these predictive models are extremely uh, volatile and extremely uh, challenging and the variance of the parameters once these parameters get estimated by even a fancy or a complex model is extremely high. Uh, and so the variability of the prediction is is very large and this means that indeed most of the time the prediction uh, fails and uh, and we go out without an umbrella and come back home soaked at least that's what that's the case in Belgium so in order to understand how uh, deep learning what, what is the role that deep learning can play for climate uh, simulations for climate forecast uh, I have been reading a bit about the domain knowledge, what I need to understand, what I need to know before understanding uh, and speaking about deep learning, you know, applied deep learning to, to these specific use cases. And so I ended up on a paper developed by a group of researchers from the Earth System Science at University of California and Columbia University and the Faculty of Physics in Munich, Germany. And they developed this so-called CloudBrain, which is a deep learning, machine learning algorithm uh, that apparently seems to solve a very challenging task 
uh, that is uh, that goes under the name of uh, superparametrization. Now, before getting into the details of uh, how this machine learning model works and why it has been adopted by this group of researchers, we should know just the little, the minimum uh, about the domain uh, and about climate forecast, which is convection. So convection is a plays a very important role for climate forecast, and it has several related meanings in uh, in uh, weather uh, predictions. But it almost always involves rising air. So it usually refers to so-called moist convection. Uh, that is a physical process uh, by which the uh, excess water vapor in rising air condenses to form a cloud. So the heat that is released through this condensation process can help to sustain the convection by warming the air even farther and making it rise still higher. Now, what I recall from Physics 101 was that uh, warmer air goes up and the colder air stays down. So that's a, a very brief, very, very brief explanation of uh, the physical process behind cloud formation. Convection, of course, can be of different types and it can also be dry, um, as it happens for on a sunny day, for instance, over the desert. Um, but it could also be uh, more humid uh, in more humid regions. And so, you know, there are different types of convection. But as a general rule, what goes up must come down. And so all of the air that rises up through convection must be balanced by a uh, equal amount of sinking air somewhere else. And, uh, and so this is kind of a vertical circulation system uh, that involves rising air uh, where the visible cloud forms and sinking air around the cloud. So, you know, there is this convection movement um, that, that should be modeled by, and usually, usually is modeled by researchers who want to do a climate forecast. Now, it is also known that modeling at convective permitting scales, uh, and so taking into account all these movements due to convection, is extremely it's very important to have a, a very accurate model, but it's also extremely challenging uh, and oh, I must say impractical at present with current technology uh, because of the computational requirements that are needed for, uh, for such, uh, such uh, lower scale uh, and high resolution modeling. Of course, someone out there can say, yeah, but I can run these models for months and have my my simulations almost always accurate yeah that's true but you know the computations are extremely challenging and uh, the system is extremely dynamic and so that will not give you a lot of uh, advantage in the, in the in this type of process so in order to alleviate this problem and make these simulation and these calculations more approachable for uh, for machines, um, researchers uh, are using another approach, uh, which is very interesting, and goes under the name of cloud superparametrization. What is parametrization? Well, superparametrization is a type of so-called multimodal framework. And what is a multimodal framework? In a multimodal framework, you usually have a host model and a guest model. Uh, so this is a technique for modeling physical systems with a 
relatively large range of important scales. Okay, and the climate system is one such system. So a model is typically designed to simulate processes, um, usually physical processes, on a certain scale of interest. But it also needs information about other things and other phenomena that are happening on, for instance, a smaller scale or a larger scale, or definitely to, you know, scales that are not, you know, the, the scientist is not directly interested in. But this is missing information that is usually uh, summarized by so-called model parameters. And so one can say, I don't care what's going on you know, in, a, in a simulation uh, at a lower scale because I'm observing at a macro scale. And so I will model that as a researcher. I will model that micro phenomenon as this set of parameters, alpha, beta, gamma, whatever. Okay. And so this is what happens with parametrization. Okay? It's a method for estimating parameter values without actually simulating the processes directly. Very interesting. Now, superparametrization replaces one or more parametrizations with another model that is designed to simulate these processes explicitly in order to provide more accurate parameter values back to the main model. And so there is host model that says, hey, I want to look at that other, I, I need actually the parameters of this other guest model, this other little model, without simulating it. And then I use, an, you know, a super parameterization approach means I use another model to provide to the host model the parameters of the micro experiment or the micro process that's going on at a lower resolution. Does it make sense? Probably not, but you know, Think about superparametrization as a model into the model. What did uh, this research group do uh, in, uh, in for climate forecast, and their project goes under the name of CloudBrain, is to train a neural network on these superparametrized simulations. And so what they exploit of a neural network, what you know they take advantage of, is the capability of neural networks in general uh, to approximate any nonlinear deterministic function. And this is a property that goes under the name of universal approximation theorem. What these researchers wanted to do is to use an artificial neural network to parametrize convection in coarse-scale climate simulations by learning from cloud-permitting superparametrized simulations. And so from simulations, they wanted to train a neural network so that next time they don't need to run the simulation, they just need to use the neural network with the learned parameters and that's it. And so this would speed up the process dramatically. And so this is a very uh, clever way of dealing with uh, very complex models. I, that's why I decided to have an episode because this I think can be applied to pretty much any complex model out there, not just for climate, but for very big uh, systems, even in finance, when you want to use an extremely large number of, uh, you know, I would not say parameters, but I would say more other phenomena, other little models that are part of the huge host model. Everything is, of course, reported in the paper. It's a relatively easy read. And uh, I summarize here in this episode the variables that uh, these researchers used as input and output 
to the artificial neural network. And then we'll go through, uh, you know, the type of data they use, the learn, deep learning library uh, and the optimization uh, strategy they used, and of course also the network architecture or topology. So as input variables, they of course used something that is very specific to the domain of interest, which is, for instance, temperature and humidity at the beginning of a certain time step. Uh, we'll give some more details about this time step in the description of the data. Then they use, for instance, surface pressure, sensible heat and latent heat flux, uh, temperature and humidity tendency from dynamics and incoming solar radiation, all things that can be measured on, of course, different scales. And as output variables, so what the neural network will actually predict by using these input variables is uh, other things like a convective and turbulent temperature tendency, convective and turbulent humidity tendency, and also long and short wave heating tendency. Now, they also, in terms of data, they use a, a three-month spin-up period. And for the host global model, they use a time step frequency of 30 minutes. So these observations are basically are effectively collected every 30 minutes from 8192 cloud resolving arrays. Uh, and the simulation is run for two years with a total uh, number of uh, samples, training samples per year, uh, up to 140 million. So 140 million training samples per year. Uh, one year of data is about 375 gigabyte uh, in size. And uh, the second year is uh, used for uh, validation. So in the first 140 million training samples are used for to train the network and uh, uh, second 140 million training samples, second year, are used for validating the model. Which library did they use for such a complex model? Uh, Python library Keras. Probably most of you know what Keras is. Keras.io is uh, a very, very easy to use library for deep learning. Uh, it's even more interesting now that it uses TensorFlow as a backend, so uh, you can basically write a very easy piece of code in Python that implements a relatively complex uh, neural network topology with very little, uh, with very few lines of code, very little effort, and still uh, is using TensorFlow behind that. Uh, the code, of course, is um, reported in the show notes, in the, the GitHub repository uh, that I will uh, report in the show notes as well. And uh, the training time took approximately 12 hours on a GPU that is not extremely, you know, it's not a, the last, not the fancy, super fancy GPU. It's a relatively good one, a GTX 970 uh, NVIDIA. And um, the first year, uh, as I said, has been used for training and uh, the second year for uh, model validation. As, uh, as you all know, uh, deep learning uses, you know, usually trains data in, uh, in, uh, in batches. And so the batch size for this specific case was 1,024 samples. In order to reduce the loss, um, we had a number of uh, uh, other episodes uh, on datasciencetome.com about uh, uh, optimization strategies for deep learning. So when the network is training, what the network is basically doing is finding the best parameters that minimize the loss function. What is the loss function? The loss function is a function that basically 
calculates a distance, so to speak, between the true values and the predicted values. And so we want that function to, you know, want to minimize that function, right? We want to function that we want the differences between the true values and the predicted values to be as small as possible. And so in reducing the loss, they use the uh, Adam optimizer. Again, in a previous episodes uh, of Data Science at Home, I also explained optimization strategies for deep learning and more specifically, the Adam optimizer with all the reasons why the Adam optimizer is actually uh, one of the best, if not the best uh, optimization strategy for deep learning at the moment. As for the learning rate, which is the step that the gradient descent has to take to minimize the loss function, uh, they started with a, a 10 to the negative three. Uh, that is a variable learning rate. They divide it by five every five epochs. And so they basically train the entire system, the entire model in uh, uh, 30 epochs. As for the regularization technique, they haven't used any regularization technique, for instance, any dropout, any randomization of the uh, of the connections in the last layer usually. And why did they do that? Uh, probably because the number of uh, training samples was already quite large. And so usually with very large training data sets, you don't apply any dropout, any regularization technique. And uh, the network seemed to be relatively robust already on uh, such a large data set. Now, Another important step to take into account is about data normalization and scaling. Something that I've noticed um, many researchers or well, practitioners kind of forget to do uh, at the beginning of, uh, of a training a neural network. And so something that is very important to do is to uh, normalize the input and, and most likely scale them. It's, um, you know, it's not a mandatory task, you know, things can work also without data normalization and without scaling. But actually, it turns out that the training process becomes much faster when data uh, have been normalized. And how do you normalize and scale? Well, very simple. You take each input variable, you subtract the mean, and you divide by the standard deviation of the input, and boom, you get your data normalized and scaled. And then you start training the network on the normalized and scaled input. To make the output variables comparable, they also converted the output variables to common energy units. And this is also another strategy to normalize the output as well. The last point, actually the one before the last, is about network architecture or topology. So what type of architecture did they use? They, you know, designing a neural network is a black art and there is no way to understand and uh, and say okay i'm gonna use a network with six layers or 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 25 layers of course the general rule says that <laughs> the more parameters you have the better scores and deeper networks uh, give better results almost all the time except in those cases in which if you have very deep networks you you know increase the chances to overfit your data and uh, explode the gradients. And there are other side effects of having networks that are uh, much larger than they should really be. There is always also a sweet spot between complexity and uh, training time and of course error rate. So they found, I actually they don't report in the paper how did they 
end up to to such a such an architecture but they use a deep network with eight uh, eight hidden layers and 512 nodes each which is not extremely large network but it's a, quite a good one there is really a lot of parameters in there also i think that the uh, training data is uh, you know the amount of training data at their disposal was uh, more influential than the architecture for sure once the model has been trained the last step is of course to evaluate that model and uh, what they did was to uh, calculate the mean squared error statistic calculated across all four output variables and so what they basically did is to calculate the mean squared error between the predicted values and the true values and that's a pretty good statistical measure about how good or bad the model is doing. I also checked uh, some images that uh, compare the predicted values to the true values in kind of a visual way. And I must say that it's very difficult to see a difference between what a very well-known model is uh, was saying, which is the true value, also so-called super parameterized community atmosphere model, or SPCAM3, and the predicted values uh, of this artificial neural network designed by this research group. So. If you look at the two images, it's very difficult to understand which one is which. And this means that the neural network was, was extremely accurate in the predictions. One important observation that the researchers do in their paper, and I'm really grateful for that because they were really fair in their conclusion, is that uh, neural networks are, well, the, the predictions have significantly less variability in terms of the mean squared error loss function. This suggests that the artificial neural network in this specific case, but I would say in general too, uh, they produce and predict just an average value in all those cases where there is a very high uncertainty. And this is, uh, a, this is very well known uh, to researchers and should be known also to those who believe that neural networks are extremely good at generalizing things. That's not true. So neural networks are, first of all, deterministic machines and uh, function approximators. Okay? So that's what neural networks are good at. And they can approximate nonlinear functions very well. Neural networks are not good for magics. <laughs> uh, they are just good at approximating things. Another thing that is very important to clarify is that neural networks are good at approximating things that have been observed already. And this is important because this means that if you rely on a neural network as a generalization tool, you might have very bad results. That's exactly what is shown by uh, these, you know, flat results uh, when a neural network doesn't know what to, what to do. Uh, and so in all these cases in which the network doesn't know if it's a zero or if it's a hundred, almost always the network will, re will respond with a 50. Okay, and so will respond with an average value in all those cases in which uh, the network is not, the model is not certain about the uh, the, the, the final result. So this is very important. This work was, of course, needs a lot of, uh, you know, this is just the first step towards um, having neural networks and seeing more neural networks in action for climate forecast. Um, I had very much fun 
<laughs> reading this work and uh, I'm really glad that this guy is published and also provides the source code and uh, I will report all this in the in the show note of course that's it for today thank you very much for listening and supporting this podcast till next time this episode is supported by CryptPad, the secure collaboration platform to edit your documents with colleagues and friends without compromising your privacy. No document can be read by the cloud or the NSA, not even CryptPad themselves. You can try it for free. For more, visit cryptpad.fr. C-R-Y-P-T-P-A-D.fr. This was Data Science at Home the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. If you like the show, don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can also find us on datascienceathome.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get the latest updates. Thanks for listening. Imagine an organization that wants to unlock the value of their data, but their data is too sensitive. Imagine a data scientist who wants to work on very rare data, but she cannot access them. With FitChain, organizations and individuals can unlock the value of their data instantly, connecting them to data scientists who have an incentive to work on a solution. No confidential information will ever leave the organization, which, thanks to FitChain, can keep their industrial secrets while enjoying the endless benefits of machine learning. But wait, there's more. Data owners can monetize their data. Data scientists can monetize their models. With a team of experts in AI and blockchain technology, FitChain allows highly regulated environments from domains like healthcare, research and development, and banking to take advantage of machine learning without compromising the thing we value most, confidentiality. Visit fitchain.io and unlock the value of your data. Hey, are you still there? Well, let me tell you about the newsletter of Data Science at Home. It's my free digest of the best content in artificial intelligence, data science, predictive analytics, and computer science. Subscribe now, datascienceathome.com.